Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. This episode is recorded on Wednesday, September 18th, 2019, starting at 8.10 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 223rd episode of the show. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with astrologer Alan Oaken, who's the author of a number of highly influential astrology books, such as Alan Oaken's Complete Astrology and Rulers of the Horoscope. For more information about how to subscribe to the podcast and help support the production of future episodes by becoming a patron, please visit theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. Hey, Alan, thanks for joining me today. Oh, pleasure to be here, Chris. Thank you. Uh, where are you joining me from? I live in Bali, Indonesia, where I'm proof there is a tomorrow, because right now it is Thursday morning at 10, 12 a.m. here in Bali. I love that. Yeah. And it's uh, eight o'clock at night here in Denver on September 18th. And what I also love about that is our charts for the start of this episode are just completely different mm-hmm. based on our relative locations as well. Absolutely. Yes. All right. Brilliant. Um, so thank you so much for joining me today. I'm excited about this partially for almost purely personal reasons because your book on astrology, Alan Oaken's Complete Astrology, was actually one of the first astrology books that I ever bought and I learned astrology from. So it's actually a great honor to have you on the show just because you then were essentially indirectly one of my first astrology teachers back when I was still a teenager. Thank you. You actually started learning astrology as a teenager as well, right? No. Actually, I uh, started learning astrology at 23 years of age after what would be called a mystical experience. Okay. And shall I share that? Sure. What was the experience? Well, I wasn't on any drugs or anything like that. I wasn't on alcohol or anything that would disturb the focus of my awareness. What was year was submitted- this, by the way? Uh, this was 1967. It was uh, 10, about 10 p.m., 10, 10 p.m. I've already drawn up the chart for it, of course. 10, 10 p.m. on the 24th of October, sun at zero Scorpio, um, exactly trying my zero Cancer Mars in the eighth house. So there was a rebirthing, if you please. And I had been meditating from the time I was about 19, uh, studying yoga and meditation at um, the Integral Yoga Institute in New York under uh, the late Swami Satchidananda. And so that evening I was meditating and a Tibetan monk appeared in my inner eye and said to me, study astrology, my son, that will lead you to your path in life. So I bowed low. I said, yes, sir, I will do that. And the next morning I was living in a commune in the village because it was those years, you know. Mm-hmm. And I called my mother who lived in the suburbs. And I said, uh, can I come home and study for a while? And can you lend me some money? I need to buy some books. So my mother said yes to both of those. And I went to the suburbs, got some money, looked up in the yellow pages where there was an astrology bookstore. There was one in Manhattan on 67th Street or something like that in Lexington Avenue. So I went right back into the city, bought the astrology books, came back to my mother's house, locked myself in and started studying. And that's how it began. Wow. At 23 years old? Yes. Mm -hmm. Up until that point, I was taking postgraduate work in Romance languages. Right, because that's actually one of your great skills is you have a a way with languages, right? Thank God, yes. I have Mercury trying to Jupiter in the ninth house and 
And they both uh, sextile to Saturn and Gemini, and Saturn and Gemini rules grammar. Saturn rules structure, Gemini rules language. Saturn and Gemini, structure of language. So I'm pretty good with grammar. And I speak, I speak, lecture, write many languages. How many languages do you know? I speak seven languages. I can lecture in five of them, and the two other ones, I'm, I'm quite conversational. I'm very conversational in Indonesian and German, but I wouldn't lecture in either of those languages. I lecture in French, Italian, Spanish, Portuguese, and of course English. Okay, brilliant. So you've always had a, a way with languages. Did that come in handy in your early studies of astrology? Um, astrology is a language, so I had to learn the vocabulary, but instead of translating from one part of my lower mind to another part of my lower mind, i.e. French to Italian or something like that, I had to translate from my intuition into my intellect in order to be able to be in touch with the archetypal dynamics of astrology and then come into an intellectual explanation of what those archetypes mean relative to the, the level of consciousness of my client and to what the client needed from me. So the ability to choose the right keywords and the right level of applying those keywords, that was where language um, capability came in handy. Absolutely. Okay, brilliant. And do you share your birth data? Oh, easy. I was born on March the 28th, 1944 in the Bronx, New York. I have 2356, I believe, Scorpio rising, almost seven Virgo at the midheaven. The birth time is 1104. 1104. Looks like yeah, my database yeah, has the wrong time. Well, that's the published chart, and, and I rectified it. So okay. when it's rectified, it will be 11.04. Got it. Uh, you said a.m.? A, uh, p.m. Uh -huh. P.m., sorry. Uh, yeah, and that would be 11.04 p.m., and that would be um, Eastern War Time. There we go. So 23.48 Scorpio Rising. There we are. That's it. Brilliant. And what form of house division do you prefer? Because this just oh, defaulted to whole sign. Uh, but uh, Well, I'm, I'm an old-fashioned astrologer. I use Placidus. Okay, no problem. Let me throw it up using Placidus. Oh, how uh, nice it would be if my Mars were in the ninth house, but it isn't. So, yeah, well, it's not like you, you know, ended up in a foreign country or speak many foreign languages or do astrology or anything. No, no, not like that at all. Right. Uh, uh, so here it is. So twenty-three Scorpio rising, and your midheaven is at what is it like seven eight. Virgo? It's uh, 647, 648 of Virgo, seven degrees of Virgo. Got it. Okay. So you've got that um, Jupiter-Pluto North Node conjunction up in Leo in the ninth quadrant yeah. house. Yeah. Mars, Mars is over in the eighth, and the yeah. Saturn, Moon, and Uranus in Gemini in the seventh. So it be it, yes. Okay. And there's the Mercury you're talking about, that it's trining yeah. Jupiter and sextiling Saturn. Exactly. Very strong Jupiter, very strong Mercury. Yeah. Brilliant. All right. Well, thanks for sharing that. Um, sure. So back to your story. So you, mm -hmm. it, it sounds like then you started studying astrology right when it was hitting its heyday in the late 1960s, basically. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, I came in on that wave. Okay. So what was that like? Because we're having a similar, but I want to say smaller wave right now where suddenly there's a new generation of astrologers coming in in their 20s. And even like late teens, and astrology has suddenly become popular, or sort of trendy in the past year or two, and gotten a bunch of media attention. But it's probably 
relative to like the ni- late 1960s, like nothing like what was going on during that time, right? Well, the 1960s uh, for many of us was incredible because there was an infusion of consciousness into the human collective so that a lot of us were discovering that there was a relationship between the visible and the invisible that had never existed before because those definitions were always um, subjugated to the boundaries of orthodox religions. And so many of us were finding our communal spiritual orientation outside of our ethnic and religious background. And I have to say, one of the great helpers in that respect was LSD. And because in the use, not the abuse, of LSD was so helpful for so many of us to be able to... um, Uh, go beyond the boundaries of um, inherited uh, responsive patterns to life and to move into a very strong focus of individuation with a very clear identity to spirit. And unfortunately, many of my contemporaries uh, got lost in that drug dynamic. I remember the last time I took LSD, the spirit of LSD Uh, gave me a message. It was, you are now higher than where we can take you. Stop, or you'll go down. And that was the last time I said, thank you. And that was the last time I ever took any substance at all. And that was many, many years ago. And, And I'm very grateful to that lifting up of, of a veil that allowed me to come into a spiritual quest. And that's what the, the inner teacher told me when I was 23, and I was not on any substances. The inner teacher said, astrology would lead you to your path. And I was, if I might say, intelligent enough to follow what he said. Here we are. Sure. So if you were already meditating by that point, did you have yes. an interest in other like metaphysical studies or in theosophy yes. at that point? Absolutely. Well, let us say that at I'd always, from the time I can recall, seven, eight years of age, I'd always visited different churches and temples. I lived in midtown Manhattan. There were many different churches and temples available just in my neighborhood. And if I searched out further, which I did as a child, I would be finding myself in a Buddhist service. I'd be finding myself in a Catholic service. I'd be finding myself in a Jewish service. I just had a real interest in things of the spirit. But at that time, it was all cloaked in religion. So um, then when I was a teen, late teen, I came in contact with Swami Satchidananda. And uh, I started practicing Hatha Yoga, becoming a vegetarian, um, meditating. And uh, then when I found astrology, when I went shopping at the astrology bookstore, no, it was a little before that. No, I beg your pardon. I was 21. I was still at graduate school at New York University. There was a, um, a place called Wiser's, and Wiser is a very famous astrological publisher. But before Wiser was an astrological publisher, he owned a used bookstore, huge mm. used bookstore in lower Manhattan. And the basement of Wiser's was all esoteric books. So okay. you would go down there and you'd meet other teens and young people who were interested in all these esoteric subjects. 
And for $5, I saw on sale a two-volume set of Madame Blavatsky's The Secret Doctrine, which is a cornerstone to theosophical teachings. And, I, and it was on sale for five bucks. And even in 1966 or 61, whenever it was, I was 18, 19, 63 in there. Even five bucks and $63 was still cheap for these two big, beautiful volumes. So I took out my five bucks and I bought them. I started to read them, couldn't read them at all. And I said, wait, Alan, in a few years, you'll be able to read these books. So just mm. put them away for now. And I did. And I did. So um, then when I started studying astrology, at that time when I went to buy my first astrology books, at the time, I thought I had Leo Rising. And I saw a book on the shelves called Esoteric Astrology by Alan Leo. And I said, oh, well, now this is interesting. We're both named Alan, spelt with one L. And he's Alan Leo. I have Leo Rising. It's esoteric. I like the sound of that. I grabbed the book. So I started studying, and he was a theosophical astrologer. So I started right. studying theosophy and, and broad terms, the ancient wisdom teachings, simultaneously to studying astrology. So okay. the two went hand in hand. And, and that's really crucial then for your future career because there were a number of prominent um, astrologers of the theosophical lineage, starting with Alan Leo in the early 20th century, and then on to Mark Edmund Jones and even Dane Rudyard. But I really consider you to be one of the most recent, um, most prominent astrologers of the, let's say, broadly speaking, like the theosophical lineage. I feel like you were the most uh, prominent one. Um, so that would really come to influence your entire philosophy of astrology, as well as some of your technical approach. And my way of living. Mm -hmm. And and my way of living, it's at the center of my spiritual life, and the, my spiritual life is at the center of my life. So, um, it, it and also the uh, theosophical material plus astrology helped to structure this link between my intuitive perceptions and my intellectual abilities to express what I'm perceiving. And it's also helped me to have a healthy distance from the physical life, even though, of course, I'm physical and I believe it. And the older you get, the more physical you have to pay attention to. But I'm able to keep a certain dynamic of abstraction possible so I can really see what's going on in the chart. Sure. As best, as, uh, best as I can. So you came in as part of that wave, and there was many other people. This is basically like the Pluto and Leo generation, especially the people born in the 1940s and mid-1940s that all sort of came into astrology at the same time in the late 1960s and early 70s. Uh, so besides Alan Leo, what were some of your other main influences astrologically at that point early in your studies? Mark Edmund Jones. Okay. Mark Edmund Jones has written some of the most boring books a person could ever imagine which I highly recommend to everybody, because once you get through the dry and dusty language, there's treasure after treasure of astrological wisdom. So mm. Mark Edmund Jones, especially the book Essentials of Astrological Analysis, absolutely one of my Bibles. Isabel Hickey. And Isabel only wrote two books uh, that I know of. But I studied with her personally. She had a short career in astrology, uh, only 10 years. She started at 65. She passed away at 75. But I was one of Izzy's kids. 
And she had a group of young people, and we followed her up to New England to study at her home in New Hampshire and just followed her around. And so Isabel Hickey was a, a wonderful influence on me. Wow, that, that's crazy that you're one of the students of Isabel Hickey because she also mentored or at least at least very briefly had a number of other students that would go on to become prominent astrologers as well, right? Yes, yes. We were Izzy's kids. We were all in our 20s. And and she was our mom, our astrological mom. And we had a little, at the time in the, in the 60s, you formed families. So, you, you know, you lived in communes and you formed families. And, and so our astrological family were all as Izzy's kids that surrounded her. And I remember one time her lover was a black man and just this wonderful guy. And she was invited to teach a group of all black astrology students based in Harlem. And she invited me to come along. I was the only white guy that was there. And I was met with all sorts of negativity because at the time there was this incredible tension of civil rights movements. And I had to confront this group of, of, of black students to say, I think you're all prejudiced. Can you get over my skin color and let's get on to study astrology? Well, that did it. And we all made friends and it was a beautiful weekend together. It was fabulous. I'm glad I was an Aries. I could stand up there and say, wait a minute. So um, Isabel was very influential in my life on many ways, in many ways. And then there was a man I never met who died before I came into contact. His name was Rodney Collin. He was a student of Uspensky's, and he wrote a book called The Theory of Celestial Influences. So that's another one of my Bibles, The Theory of Celestial Influences, an incredible book. And then, of course, I have to speak about Max Heindel, who was the founder of, of Astrological Rosicrucian, or in the 20th century, wrote these um, astrological um, books um, in, in the Rosicrucian modality. And so he was a strong influence. And then finally, I would say Alice Bailey's book, Esoteric Astrology, which was written by the Tibetan master, D.K., through Alice. And that led me to write my book, Soul-Centered Astrology, and helped me to shape my approach to integrate exoteric and esoteric astrology as a practical means of interpreting the chart. Okay, so yeah, I, I know would, that I would, uh, Alice I, Bailey's work definitely influenced yeah. your your later the Soul Centered Astrology book, which came out in 1990, right? It came out in '88, and that approach, the integration of exoteric and esoteric astrology, was a major factor in in shaping my approach. Already very early in your studies, it was already a major influence? Absolutely. Because very early on, I, I'm a bit, I'm a little mystical. I have a very, well, little, I have a strong mystical um, orientation. So this sense of knowledge being passed on through the descent of wisdom uh, from a link to a lineage um, um, has dominated my life from the time I was 23 years old and still dominates my life. Yeah. So I, when I read a horoscope, I mean, I read for bankers, I read for housewives, I read for, you know, I don't just don't read for mystics. Um, one of the abilities that one acquires is to be able to take 
an astrology, which really is an intuitive psychic uh, science focused through the intellect, and being able to attune oneself to the archetypes and then apply them also through the opening of the heart, because you've got to be in contact with your person that you're reading for. So to be able to uh, um, receive, I'm not, I'm not a medium, uh, but one is, is receiving a certain degree of understanding about things that one has worked very hard for to achieve the mind that can receive that understanding and then apply that on the level where it's appropriate. I mean, I just yesterday did the horoscope of an Indian man from Singapore who was just totally interested in money and business, and the transcendent life didn't interest him at all. So I read for the gentleman because that's what he required of me. I mean, how do you balance that then if your primary interest yourself is is more philosophical or spiritual uh, in terms of the astrology when people are coming to you with really practical concerns about their their concrete you know day-to-day events in their life i'm not prejudiced i'm not prejudiced i'm not prejudiced racially i'm not prejudiced on levels of consciousness i mean wherever i can be of help i I try to be of help now i'll give you a little secret because you're a scorpio so i'll tell you the in the secret of it um i always throw one in for god um no matter who i'm reading for or whatever i always try to get in there and pick it up a notch. In the case of this gentleman, I reminded him of his Hindu traditions, and I reminded him of the writings of the rishis and things like that, So that because he wanted to learn how to get out of a certain situation. So I recommended some works of some Hindu rishis to him, you know? So always trying to bring the level up, but never trying to convert anybody, you know? I mean, that's not my karma. It's just um, I'm an astrologer. I, I try to help people. Sure. So you're not trying to force anything down people's throats necessarily. Um, not necessarily. No. It sounds like your influences then were largely from, or your interest in your the the authors that you gravitated towards in your astrological studies were more um, theosophical and more uh, philosophical or spiritual. What about did you were you not as drawn to some of it? Seems like some astrologers were going more of like this psychological or like the depth psychology route at that point. Was that a direction that didn't interest you necessarily as much, or or to what extent were you influenced by some of those strands of the tradition? Oh, I, I definitely uh, am interested in humanistic astrology. I mean. I'm a pretty good nuts and bolts practical astrologer, you know. I'm I'm mm-hmm. I'm, I'm I don't live in a, I live in Bali, but I, 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 that's but where I'm coming from is I've raised a family for God's sake. I have grandchildren. I mean, I've had to earn a living, you know. I'm I'm from New York. Uh, I'm not woo woo. I'm sure. just a, I'm just a man who lives a spiritual life, quote unquote. And um, in other words, when I say live a spiritual life, the sense of, of the spiritual as a reality is in my heart, and, and the grace of God, I hope, is in my heart. And that means a great deal to me. But I've certainly studied some wonderful um, modern astrologers who have contributed enormously to the realm of humanistic astrology, uh, definitely. Um, I'm not woo-woo. But I do definitely stand on a spiritual foundation. 
Sure. I guess I was just thinking, like, um, you know, one of the other people that studied under Isabel Hickey was Liz Green, who mm -hmm. I don't think she studied with her long, or maybe they had a falling out or something. I and... would think they would have had a falling out. Okay. Why do you say that? Or are you just making an assumption? <laughs> no comment. Okay. Strong personalities or something, maybe. But she very much focused on like the work of Carl Jung and primarily focusing on that approach to depth psychology and integrating that into astrology. And I guess I was mm -hmm. just wondering to what extent it seemed like you you focused more on a different part of the 20th century tradition. And even though you yes. kept things relatively grounded, that that wasn't necessarily your interest primarily. I got a lot, I got a lot out of Howard Sisportus. I got a lot out of, um, uh, oh, what's the name of that gentleman? Name, uh, um, a very famous book on transits, Rob Hand. Hand Rob yeah. Hand, um, uh, a man for whom I have enormous respect, quite the scholar and a wonderful contributor to astrology. So I'm, I'm, I've read his books, and, and not the ones on Latin and Greek, but the, but the ones on transits. And, and I've attended some of his talks at, when we were at congresses together. And um, so there are people who... I have a great deal of respect for, for whom they're not necessarily, quote, spiritual astrologers, but who definitely um, know their stuff. You know? Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, so you start studying astrology in the late um, 1960s, and mm. the, book, the book that I primarily know you by and that I feel like is your most well-known book is Alan Oaken's Complete Astrology. Uh, but this is actually a compilation of three smaller works that you wrote in the 1970s, right? Correct. That's right. I did. I wrote three books. They're called As Above, So Below, The Horoscope, The Road, and Its Travelers, and Astrology, Evolution, and Revolution. And two and a third of those books were um, incorporated into Alan Oaken's Complete Astrology by the original publisher, which was Bantam Books. And it's still in, it's had several publishers since then, and it's still selling, and people are still finding it useful. And the book was originally, the first volume came out, I think it was 1972. 1972, wow. as above, so below. So here we are, what, 40 odd years, 47 years later, and, and the book is still in young people's hands like yourself, Mr. Brennan. Right. Well, and that means that you wrote the first some portions of it, or the first book that eventually went into it. Maybe like four years in your study, if it was 1972. Yes, that's right. I, I wrote my first book called, and it's out completely out of print now, but it was called "An Astrological Guide to Living in the Age of Aquarius," mm. and it was a 300-page little paperback, and it came out. I wrote it in 1970. It came out in 71, and then I was picked up in 1970 um, or early 71 by Bantam Books, and put, they gave me a three-book contract. The result of that three-book contract were the three volumes that were later synthesized into Alan Oaken's Complete Astrology, which they also published. Wow. And this is all happening or started prior even to your Saturn return, uh, it sounds like. Listen, I put together the first computerized astrology program ever used. When this was that? Was, that was in 1969. In 1969, I was hired by a huge record manufacturing company 
I had been a, a, a translator of rock and roll songs for famous rock groups in the late 60s because of my languages. So, and I would take the groups into the studios and, and teach them how to pronounce the words so they could sing in French and Spanish, Italian, what have you. And the owner of this, the company, big corporation that owned this record producing, they knew I was also an astrologer as well as a translator. So they hired me and I was 25 years old and I was to pick an astrology team. So I chose some very well-known at the time um, astrologers who were old enough to be, well, one of them, um, Rod, Rod Chase, and then there was another one, um, I forget their names now. Um, my short-term memory is not always the best these days, I'm 75, but I remember my astrology and I remember my French. Anyway, so I had this team of very fine established astrologers that were hired by this record company, and they set me up in an office in, in on Fifth Avenue, and in Fifth Avenue and 53rd Street, and I had a secretary, and I'm 25 years old, you know, and they gave me a whole bunch of money, and the job was, and I had just gotten married and just about to have a baby. I was like, hallelujah. So... Then, uh, but the other astrologers, because they were old enough to be my grandparents, they were a little, anyway, we put together a program called um, um, Aquariscope. And it first opened in Grand Central Station in 1969. And they had 1,600 places where they were going to put these computers I'd gone to Atlanta, Georgia to work with an insurance company who were part of this much larger New York corporation who were innovative in computer design so that we could then program all the astrology that I had gotten together, the copy that I'd gotten together from these other astrologers and myself, to make these astrological reports. And it opened up with great fanfare in Grand Central Station. Wow. And I and I owned fifteen percent of the company as part of my as part of my deal, and I said, "Oh, well, God, you know, I'm going to make a fortune here. I mean, my kids are going to, you know, go to the best schools. I mean, this is fabulous." And then the lawyer uh, came up and he said, "Alan, sell us your fifteen percent. We'll give you twenty five thousand dollars, which at the time would have been about two hundred thousand dollars." And I said, "No." Uh, he said, trust me, sell. I said, no. And within six weeks, the entire company went bankrupt. Oh, no. And that was the end of Aquariscope and the end of computerized astrology until some other company picked up on it, and then it became extraordinarily popular. Okay. But that was that story. So there were some road bumps along the way in terms of your career. Uh, speed bumps. My dear friend. I can remember being having no money for rent one month and having to take on a job which required three hours of transportation to Long Island from Brooklyn and three hours back in order to get for eight weeks of traveling enough money to pay my rent. And yes, there were bumps along the way. Hey. Sure. So you had some, some lean times, but eventually, do you feel like um, it was when your book came out, the the thick book, Alan Oaken's Complete Astrology, 
was that in 1980? Do you feel like that's what established your career and established you as a well-known international astrologer? It certainly helped. It certainly helped. I can assure you there was a period of time in the 70s, uh, middle 70s, when I was on food stamps, married with a child on food stamps and still an astrologer. It only started to really open up in the early 80s. Yes, I remember being 40 years old in 1984 and going, okay, financially, we can handle life right now. So yes, that's true. And at the time, of course, there were no emails. So uh, people contact you by telephone for readings. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because that's something that's really changed over the past few years where you know, bookstores are virtually on the way out, and on the way out. Uh, every all the astrologers are moving to self-publishing, and the major publishers are no, hardly publishing astrology books anymore. And so, there's a real question, even and there's also so many different platforms online and social media platforms that people are establishing themselves and becoming famous as astrologers without you know publishing a book. So there's a question now of if publishing a book is even still necessary in order to establish oneself as a as a you know leading astrologer in the field today but i feel like you know back in the 60s and 70s that was just one of the things that you you had to do in order essential. to establish yourself essential absolutely essential if i hadn't had these books i wouldn't have had all these clients and i wouldn't have been able to be respected as someone who knows what they're talking about when they talk about astrology and sure. yes, but also um, writing books, aside from being a wonderful exercise for a person, um, uh, I don't know anymore if it's leaving behind a legacy because so many things have different platforms, as you've just said. I mean, what is an intellectual legacy at this point? I mean, can it be um, uh, manifested in terms of written material? I have three or four manuscripts sitting right here in my office waiting to be finished in editing and waiting to be published. And I intend, I pray to God, to finish them over the next couple of years and get them out as books. Mm -hmm. Will I send them to a publisher? I doubt it. Will I publish them myself? More likely. Right. What are those books, just out of curiosity? Were the One is a book on prediction techniques. And uh, okay. I won't mention the title now, but the theme is prediction techniques because it's something I've really specialized in over the years, and although um, uh, certainly, um, oh, remind me of that gentleman's name, that that one from New England uh, who wrote H a book, Hand? Rob Hand. Rob Hand. Yeah. Yes. Although Rob Hand's book is very authoritative, and although um, Sesportus has some wonderful work on this too, um, I'd like to get something out by Oaken. Um, on transits and progressions and add to the body, to the library of work on, on that. And then I have another book of the Astrology of Self-Transformation, which speaks about the use of astrology as a technique to evolve consciousness. And, um, and yeah, you then, said that that had become, consciousness has become one of your main focuses or main areas of interest in terms of astrology? It's the main focus. And why focus. is that, or, or what do you mean by consciousness, or why has it become your main focus, or what, what's of interest there? 
look what's going on in the UK, look what's going on in the United States, look what's going on in Russia, look what's going on in Bulgaria, uh, look what's going on in China. We need some consciousness, thank you very much. There's too much unconsciousness. So if, oh, and by the way, consciousness to me is love. And love is, I'm, I'm a 60s kid, you know, love and peace. So to me, uh, consciousness is love and love is consciousness. And I don't mean romantic love. I, I don't mean um, um, Venus tri-Neptune located in the solar plexus. I don't mean that. I'm talking about love as a power to manifest the higher will. And I believe that an important aspect of the higher will is love in action. So as I work to, in my small way, really, this is not false modesty, it's small. I work in my small way to bring consciousness into the lives and to, to support the efforts at growing consciousness in the lives of all my students, all my readers, all my clients, uh, and in my own life. You know, it's, a, it's a work in progress. So my... The, my my master said to me in 1967, become an astrologer. That will lead you to your path in life, my son. He didn't say astrology was my path. He said it would lead me to my path. So astrology has led me to my path, and that's the path of the evolution of human consciousness. And I love astrology as a science, and I hope as a science, I've contributed to its techniques, especially through my book, Rulers of the Horoscope. I, I hope I, I've helped with giving people some delineation techniques through that book. So I'm very respectful of the science that I love and that I share with you and our, our, our hearers. But my job is to help develop human consciousness. Sure. So maybe you see astrology not as the end goal, but as a means to an end in some way? That is quite correct. Astrology is a branch of the ancient wisdom teachings, and my focus is on the ancient wisdom teachings, and my specialty within that is astrology. Absolutely. Okay. That's why a long time ago I had a choice. I lived in New York, and I had a choice to become very rich and very famous astrologer to the stars and to these people who had really corporations and all of that. But in order to do that, I had to focus my astrology on sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I had to focus my astrology on success. I had to focus my astrology on winning over men or winning over women. I had to uh, banking investments and things like this, and then go to all these fancy parties where I'd be a noticed, invited guest. And so there would be a lot of drinking involved. I mean, I would be on Park Avenue, but I, I'd be lost. So I left that, went on food stamps, and moved to New Mexico. Um, that was a conscious choice. And then the conscious choice continued to be an astrologer to the masses or to have a niche where I was focusing on people who were working to develop themselves as human beings. I took that niche. I never became a wealthy person, but I certainly have become a person full of joy and full of purpose. No doubt about it. Oh, yes. And at 75, I'm still healthy. Thank you. Sure. Yeah, which is not necessarily the case for everybody from your generation that didn't necessarily go that route or that got stuck in some of the more, I don't know, ephemeral focuses or what have you. Yes, sir. That is true. And the drugs and the alcohol. Sure. Um, so consciousness, though, circling back to that, uh, there's a, sort of a debate 
that comes up a lot, and I was curious what your opinion is, where there's a debate about to what extent consciousness does make a difference in terms of how the horoscope plays out for a person in terms of their birth chart. And it's be, it became very common, it seems like in late 20th century astrology, to say that that was the entirety of the answer, that, that the chart itself will only manifest in certain ways depending on the person's level of consciousness. But then sometimes this would set up almost like a hierarchy as if there were people that were more or less evolved, and there became questions about whether that was true or not. Like in in the sense, like will a person experience bad things if they're not evolved as a consciousness, and if that's sort of like a not a great way to look at it or not a great way to frame things because it almost makes negative events in a person's life their fault when something things might be outside of their control. Where do you come down with all of that, or or what's your perspective? Well, first of all, Chris, I mean, that's a beautiful synthesis of many different streams of thought, all of which are current and active. And I can't address in one response all of those currents. Yeah, but like 20 different things? Yeah, but let me address certain of them. Okay. All right. Um, first of all, from a point of view of politics, I love Bernie, Okay. I mean, I believe in everybody having a free higher education and everybody having free medication and everybody having enough food to feed themselves and their kids. Okay, but from a spiritual point of view, I'm not a socialist. There are different levels of consciousness. Certain people are born aware. Certain people have to learn awareness. Some people are born aware and lose their awareness. Um, The... uh, dynamics of human consciousness are malleable. And in order to grow in consciousness, one needs a discipline. Saturn has to be involved. It is hierarchical. There are levels, okay? And just because a person is at such a level and one person is at another level, the higher you are, the more humble you get. The higher you are, the more inclusive you become. The higher you are, the more loving you are. The higher you are, the more perceptive and less judgmental you are. It's as simple as that. So, and it, and you are born with a certain fate. You are born with a certain karma, if you will. Never mind the question of past lives. I'm not going to get into that right now. But you, at the very least, you're born with the synthesis of your biological inheritance that comes through your genes and lives in your cells. At the very least, you've inherited that much from the past, and you play it out. And you play it out until, symbolically speaking, there is your progress lunar return, and then your progress Saturn return, that 27 to 29-year-old stage in there, where one has the uh, begins to get the awareness that, wait a minute, I can objectify my antecedents. I can objectify my antecedents, and I can create a dynamic of consciousness that is connected to my own process of individuation. Now, to be able to come to that realization intellectually is, hello, how are you? I mean, that is, you know, a come-to-Jesus moment, hello. A lot of people don't know that in those terminologies. I give it those terminologies because I'm a teacher of, of this path. But it comes as a realization that, wait a minute, I'm not just my mother's kid, I can be myself. Simply said, That's it. 
how you go about becoming yourself can change the orientation of what's in your horoscope. A very old, old, old astrological saying is, and I'm sure you know it, Chris, the horoscope impels, it doesn't compel. Right. Okay. But it compels more if a person is living in their moon, if a person is living in their solar plexus and below. The compelling dynamic lessens when the instinctual power over the material life is raised up by being centered in the heart. Once we become centered in the heart, the dynamic of a certain degree of free will begins to express itself. And then as we move out from the heart, this little point here, this third eye point, the center of Buddha begins, if I, use a, uh, if I can combine west and east, the center of Buddha combines with the center of Christ. And then these two synthesize, and all of a sudden, you're finding yourself on a path, a path of self-creation. And the material you have to use to create that self is in your natal chart. But are you bound in that natal chart? In some ways you are, and in other ways you can be free. In other ways, sometimes you can be free. I mean, yeah. that's the question though, is can one through one state of consciousness or let's say level of consciousness actually be free to any great extent from their karma and from their fate? Or does one's level of consciousness alter? Does that necessarily mean if you're more spiritually evolved that you're necessarily going to have a better life, materially speaking, let's say? No, it doesn't mean that, but you'll certainly have a more joy-filled life. I, I live on an island where the majority of people are very poor. This is Bali, and people come here and they, they go to the tourist parts of the island. They live in lovely hotels, or they rent lovely villas, and they have these nicely dressed Balinese who serve them and all of that. But the villages are very poor. Some Balinese have money. Most of them don't. But they have a very deep religious life, a very deep... They're, 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 they believe in an animistic form of Hinduism or a Hindu form of animism. And they have a caste system here too. Only nobody is an untouchable in Bali. So, uh, and they're happy and they're kind and they're generous people within their poverty. They're, they're, they're joy-filled and they're spiritually aware. Uh, it's one of the main reasons I live here is that I'm surrounded by these people that are spiritually aware. They're not necessarily educated, but boy, are they spiritually aware. So that makes all the difference because I'm surrounded by people who are centered in their hearts. That's kind of nice. It makes things rather gentle in the neighborhood, you know? Sure. Yeah, I guess I was just... Um... There, there was one extreme version of some of the ideas of that came out of the New Age movement that I think mm -hmm. went in the direction of like the secret and stuff like that, where yeah. by simply changing your intentionality or setting your intentionality and depending on your level of consciousness that you can literally manifest whatever material benefits you want versus the other extreme end of the spectrum is, let's say, the ancient Stoic perspective of that you can't change the fate that is in your horoscope, but you can only accept it or choose not to accept it on an internal level, and that's where freedom resides as an internal quality. I mean, where do you fall on that spectrum of those yesterday, two extreme versions? Yesterday, I was doing the horoscope of, a, of an Indian gentleman who is a businessman from Singapore, uh, a, a handsome fellow in his mid-30s, so filled with anxiety, uh, Saturn squaring Mercury in the chart, 
so filled immutable signs, so filled with anxiety, so filled with negative thoughts. And I had to say to him, um, he also had this Mars aspect, which showed me he had high blood pressure. I said, you're going to burst all your blood vessels if you keep this up, you know. Um, you, I had to speak to him really strongly. He was very male, and it had to be very male in return for him to get what I was saying. And um, and I said to him, you know, uh, you need to meditate. You need to recognize that your mind is not you and that you have the ability to program your own mind and that once you get into that place, your your avenue in business will be a lot easier and you'll have much less anxiety. And I talked along those lines with him for a while. Didn't go in very far. In any event, what I'm saying is that's an example of working on mutating your life. Any of our listeners who have been working on doing certain types of exercises or following certain diets or following certain meditation procedures have seen very positive changes take place in their lives, which otherwise the horoscope would say, you don't stand a chance, buddy. So I do believe we can make certain qualitative changes in our way of being. Quantitatively, I don't know. That's a big question, but certainly qualitatively. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I guess that's just one of the internal debates that astrologers have been having for a long time is just what you can change or how much you can change in your life. Absolutely. It's a huge question. But I tell you, um, just as you, you can't change your color unless you're Michael Jackson, just as you can't change your color, there are certain things in your karma you can't change because that's the coloring of your energy field. And then, yeah. there are certain, and then there are certain things you can do. There are certain things you can do to modify your energy field. And, sure. and that requires, to me, certain disciplines of mind that create avenues for the descent of a higher awareness that can be practically applied in the daily life. Sure. I guess one of the ambiguities or the things that was always hard for me is that you don't ever fully know which certain things are changeable versus which things are not changeable. And in some instances in your life, there's that ambiguity. So maybe sometimes right. the best best thing is just to attempt to make the change when you can, no matter what, um, to whatever extent you can. And if you can, you can. If you can't, then you did your best, I guess, at least. I agree with you 100%. There's a certain thing called self-acceptance, you know, where you go, okay, I'll accept that. So, uh, and get on with it, you know. Um, uh, but the human nature has a certain grace connected to it. And unless you are disabled in some mental or emotional way, in other words, you're schizophrenic or or you have a severe mental deficiency, or you're paralyzed, there are certain things that cannot be changed. But in many ways, there are things that can be changed. And we just have to find the methodology of doing it. That is the relationship between Virgo and Capricorn. Virgo are methodologies, processes, and techniques of, of, of self-improvement. Um, and Capricorn is a zero Capricorn is the degree of of, of fulfillment, uh, the degree of uh, attainment, uh, an attainment that comes from doing all of those disciplines that Virgo requires. Brilliant. That makes sense. All right. So 
let's see, like moving on to some other topics. Uh, so consciousness was a big one, but I think we could get stuck there uh, this entire time pretty easily. But that's probably good for now. One of the things I always meant to ask you, and one of the treatments I always liked in your books, actually before we get there, I did want to mention you already mentioned it first in in passing a little bit, but one of your other books that was very influential for me was a somewhat later book that you wrote in nineteen or in two thousand, I think, titled "Rulers of the Horoscope." Yes, that um, one. Yes, and this was just uh, you know, like I said, I started off with your book, your complete astrology, as one of my first books, but I found rulers of the horoscope several years later when I was at more of an intermediate stage. And it just happened to be that perfect intermediate astrology book that dealt with a technique which is looking at the ruler of one house when it's in another house that is more of a it seemed like that was a concept that was less it was less prominent or treated less in like late 20th century astrology than it was in like earlier forms of astrology. Did you get that impression as well? And is that why you wrote the book? Yes, you see, um, I had some pretty good astrologer teachers who were, you know, older, much older than myself, and therefore their their roots were in an earlier astrology, and dispositorship and rulership were fundamental to making our way through the labyrinth. And I recognized that modern astrologers, later astrologers, were not using that technique. And I find that the technique of dispositorship and rulership is fundamental to, I'll use the expression again, of making our way through the labyrinth, because the natal horoscope is a labyrinth. So how do you get in there? And how do you make your way through without getting lost in the energetic maze? And I found that I developed a system which I, know I call the system, I don't know if I developed it, but I call the system energetic affinities. So I try to find the energetic affinities between planet signs and houses and using the energetic affinities. For example, um, Jupiter is always going to be related to your ninth house. It may not rule your ninth house natally, but it rules it naturally. And Jupiter is always going to be related to Sagittarius planets. I mean, so, so you, you try to find all of these relationships, and by finding these relationships and these actual rules, and in my book, Rulers of the Horoscope, I give out rules, um, the rules of following dispositorship, mutual reception, what is that all about? Final dispositor, what is that all about? And by being able to follow the energy patterns, you will be able to make your way through the labyrinth without getting lost in the maze. And that was the purpose of that book, and it was specifically written for intermediate astrology students. Yeah, well, it was perfect for that. It's very concise, but very straightforward and very practical. But so one of the issues that you deal with in the book that's become much more prominent, even in the what nineteen almost twenty years since you wrote it, um, due to the revival of older forms of astrology and traditional astrology, now there's much more. Debates about modern ruler schemes of like um, you know Uranus ruling Aquarius and Neptune ruling Pisces and Pluto ruling Scorpio versus using the traditional rulership schemes of Mars ruling Scorpio and Saturn ruling Aquarius and Jupiter ruling Pisces as well as Sagittarius. Yeah. yeah. And you actually dealt with or tried to reconcile that issue in this book. Um, I did. So I was curious to talk to you about that. How do you reconcile that issue? Okay. First, I want to tell you a little story because old people tell stories. I'm going to tell you a little story. All right. I was 
26 years old or 27 at most. And I met a 75-year-old Swami from Madras named Ramatirtha. And I don't remember where I met him, but I invited him to our home in New York. I met him someplace outside of New York at his conference. And he came and he stayed with us for a couple of weeks. And during that time, Swamiji asked me to read his horoscope. And I knew nothing about Vedantic astrology. And so I said to him, uh, Sir, um, at home in India, uh, you would be a Leo. And I have your horoscope as you being a Virgo. And I really don't know how to reconcile those two. So the difference between the tropical and sidereal zodiac? Yes, sir. 23 degrees. Okay. And currently. And he looked at me with a smile and he said, my son, the universe is all the same for us all. We just look at it through different lenses. Now, how sharply is your lens focused? Mm. And that gave me an enormous relief. It gave me two things. It gave me the inspiration to sharpen my own lens and to make sure that I had a lens that was individually focused but connected to universal principles and that I would be true to that lens. So then I kept going in that direction to uh, um, create and to synthesize from various aspects of astrology, facets of astrology, my own approach to the delineation of the man. I use both the traditional rulers and, quote, the new rulers, i.e. Neptune-Jupiter, Pluto-Mars, and um, Saturn-Uranus for um, Pisces-Scorpio-Aquarius, respectively. And it's just the way you apply them. I mean... I mean, you realize that's kind of a weird approach by the time, by like 2000, it seemed like most of your contemporaries had jettisoned the traditional rulership scheme and everyone was just using the modern rulers. So that did set you a little bit apart, right? Or do you not yes, see, was that but, not but, the case? But, 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 but Mars is the shooting of the gun. Uh, bang, bang, you're dead. Pluto is what happens after you die. Mm. So when you have Mars and Pluto in relationship to Scorpio, you have this entry into create destruction because that's what Scorpio has to do, even when it's coming from uh, Scorpio rising myself. When it comes from even its highest nature, it's going to go in there and smash the status quo, leaving a space. Mars always creates space, leaving a space for something higher and more refined to come through, or if it's negative, leaving something sinister to come through. So you're going to smash the status quo, right? Okay. And then you have a process of transformation, which is not Marshall at all. Marshall has no patience for a process. No patience for process. But Pluto is the process of transformation. So by taking that approach just to Scorpio, I can see Mars as the ruler of Scorpio in more eminent things, more personality-centered things, and Pluto as a larger and longer process of transformation. So that would be just a hint, if you will, of of my approach to using the traditional and the um, new rulerships relative to a sign. Sure. So you pay attention to and you actually provide delineations for both when looking at each one. So you have like one delineation for 
looking at um, the ruler of your Scorpio ruled sign, if you have like Scorpio rising, paying attention to where Mars is placed, and then you have a separate delineation for looking at if you have Scorpio rising, where Pluto is placed in the chart? Yes, I do. And we have to remember levels of consciousness because to a person who functions from the solar plexus downward, Pluto is going to represent the will of the personality to transform whatever is in the life for the purposes of personality. But if we're functioning from the level of the heart center upward, Pluto is going to represent the will of the soul. And the will of the soul is to, no matter what destruction has to be done, the purpose is to create greater love and greater awareness. And Pluto is a painful process, even at its nicest. Something has to be sacrificed. That's what the, the will is about, is the, the will to sacrifice. If I can get a bit Christian here, and why not? God so loved humanity that he gave to humanity his only begotten son, and the son manifested love at, through the sacrifice of divinity. I mean, to me, that's a Pluto principle. Okay, brilliant. Um, and that actually leads us, or could lead us to, if you'd like to, one of my favorite treatments that you have in complete astrology. And I don't know if this was unique or if you had gotten it from somewhere else, but you, just your treatment of the symbolism of the planetary glyphs always stuck with me. Um, and I always found very interesting and compelling in the way that you broke down the fundamental symbolism or symbolic meaning of the planetary glyphs. Was that something you had developed or had you gotten that from an earlier source? Oh, I had studied symbolism as, uh, as indicated by the Rosicrucians, as indicated by that marvelous book by Manly P. Hall, this encyclopedia of esotericism. I uh, mm. don't forget the, the original name. I had studied um, Kabbalah. I had studied um, tarot. I had studied, oh my goodness, I'm a student, you know. So I, I've spent years and years studying uh, symbolism and then was able to synthesize those studies and apply it to the symbolic language of astrology, and hence my interpretations. Okay. Look, my friend, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a very ninth house person insofar as I'm connected to lineages. Sure, my, yeah. my ruling planet is in the ninth house. My north node is in the ninth house. My Jupiter is in the ninth house. And, and they all connect to my sun. And, and so I'm very connected to lineages and putting forth lineages. Sure. So definitely it would be hard to distinguish, you know, because you were drawing on all of these different sources. Uh, you know, there were a lot of things that would have influenced your views, especially when it comes to interpreting symbolism. Yes. I mean, there's no doubt that Oaken has an ego. There's no doubt to that at all. But my ego is not for me to be the prime genitor of astrology. It is to be a student of an ancient science and in some way contribute to the world. Sure. So if if we could um, just maybe run through a little bit of that, just because I think it's an interesting treatment. You break sure. down the planetary glyphs into, I think, two or three core pieces mm -hmm. and then sort of say that every glyph is sort of a rearrangement of one of those two or three core pieces and that provides the symbolism for what the, the planet is actually supposed to mean in astrology. Absolutely. So we have the cross, which is earth and manifestation and okay. personality. Uh, I mean, the passion of Jesus is the 
uh, the redemption of personality and the fusion up into the soul where one becomes an initiate and merges with the Father in, in terms of, 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 of merging with spirit via soul. I am the way, and through me we get to the Father's house. So the cross of matter is the field through which this drama takes place. And then you have the semicircle, which indicates, if I put it this way, um, uh, facing upward, reception to the incoming energies of spirit. And if I take the semicircle this way, it's going down through what we call in the teachings the Antakarana or the Rainbow Bridge, the link between the higher self, the soul, and the personality. So now the soul is pouring itself into the personality. And then the final one is the circle, which is the all and everything spirit, you know. So the sun is the dot within the circle, the manifesting one atom of solar energy known as you or me. Okay, brilliant. So, so for example, the um, there's several glyphs that incorporate the cross into them. So one of the two, the two contrasts that's actually really nice that you talk about in the book is Jupiter. Uh, versus Saturn, both of which uh, have a cross in their glyphs, right? Yes. So here you have Jupiter with the semicircle of the soul above matter. And then in Saturn, you have the cross of matter above the soul. So in other words, when uh, Saturn is used incorrectly, um, the orientation is to have power. There we go. There's Jupiter. All right, so we'll take Jupiter. I mean, here you have the energy of, of light, the energy of love, the soul, manifesting over the earth. So you have love infusing into matter. Okay, so because the semicircle is in the top part of the Jupiter glyph, it represents right. the soul being above or elevated above matter, which is matter being the cross. That's but right. with uh, Saturn, it's literally almost the reverse, exact reverse glyph, where the cross is elevated I'm sorry, above. I'm so sorry. Mm -hmm. No, go ahead. Y yes. Well, that's why that's the illusion of Capricorn. It's the illusion of power. It's the illusion of Trump. It's the illusion of anyone that puts matter above spirit. They get limited. They eventually, mm. they get limited. They come across chronos, which is um, the Greek word for for time, but it's also the Greek word for Saturn, Kronos. They get in touch with Kronos and they die. <laughs> they expire. Has so poof, there goes their power. You know? So in this sense, Saturn to me uh, stands as a warning. Okay. Now Interesting. I, I I like Saturn. I mean I, I find that a life without what when, when my first physical embodied teacher, one of my first embodied teachers was a man named Isidore Friedman. And he came into my life when I was in my mid-20s and he was in his mid-70s. He was a Capricorn and he looked at this wild Aries guy and he said, Alan, structure, order, process, and form, you have to learn those. Well, I didn't like Isidore very much. I was an Aries, and to heck with structure. Who had patience for form? I mean, let's just go, you know, Aries from New York. And But I loved him, and I realized that little bit of me that was awake at that time, that he was telling me the truth. And so now, in almost all my teachings, almost all my situations with, with, with my students, I teach them process, order, structure, and form. Thank you, Isidore. 
Brilliant. So there were, and there's a similar sort of symbolism in terms of the reversal of the Venus and Mars glyphs, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, here in Venus, you have the circle of here. There you go. You have uh, in Venus, you have the circle of spirit over the cross of matter, and in Mars, you have the cross of matter over spirit. Hence, the king carrying the orb with the cross on top, which is in the inversion of the king of heaven. It's the king of earth. Now, when the king of earth tries to impersonate the king of heaven or the queen of earth trying to impersonate the queen of heaven, however you want to phrase it, there's chaos in the world and there's war. Mm, okay. Brilliant. And finally, the sun, uh, I guess Mercury kind of combines a lot of those or several of those pieces all into one glyph? Yes, it does, because Mercury is the midway point. And in esoteric astrology, Mercury occupies a very major position as Lord of the Fourth Ray. But I don't want to get into that. We don't have time, and it's too huge a subject. Sure. But Mercury is the midway because Mercury rules mind, and mind stands in between soul and personality. So and I'm not talking about lower mind. I'm talking about the functions of higher mind as higher mind relates to lower mind. When we have a link between higher mind and lower mind, when that link is consistent, um, we are opening the door between soul-personality fusion. Mercury helps to do that. Okay, brilliant. Um, yeah, so this is a whole treatment that you have when you get to the planets, and that's one of the things that you start with in introducing the planets in Alanokin's complete astrology. And in um, soul-centered astrology. Okay, well, let's mention that quickly because that was one of your other major books that you published. Mm -hmm. I think in 1990 was Soul Centered Astrology, and yes. that was that's one of the only treatments you mentioned. Um, Alice Bailey published a work on astrology, and she introduced in that book a, a radically different approach to astrology compared to traditional astrology up to that point. And yes. it seems like that. I never saw after the publication of that book. I think she published it in like the 1930s or 1940s, but it 1930s, didn't seem like yeah. mm -hmm. 1930s. It didn't seem like it took off or caught on. And you're one of the only major astrologers that seemed like that continued that lineage or, or um, really tried to write a major work as an exposition of that sort of approach, right? Well, I consider the Tibetan master who wrote that book to be my teacher, and he said in the book. I am looking for a group of astrologers who, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm looking for a group of astrologers who will, now I quote, make fair experiment with what I am teaching, unquote. And by making fair experiment with what I am teaching, allow that to go forth into more people's lives than what this book is. So I said, yes, sir, I will do that. That's what I said to myself. I said, yes, sir, yes, I will do that. I'll take that on as a task. So what I did was I took the principles that in the book Esoteric Astrology and I merged them with the principles of traditional astrological delineation so that in the process a person could have an esoteric lens into the life of a human being through the natal horoscope. And, I, and just as um, uh, the Master Tibetan only gave us hints about the meaning of the first two houses from an esoteric point of view, I extrapolated from that and I gave the meaning, as I perceived it, the esoteric meaning of all the 12 houses compared to their exoteric meanings. And then I tried to do the same thing with the signs. 
and 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 give how signs work on an esoteric level and how they work on an exoteric level. And then I divided the exoteric level up into two, into people functioning from the solar plexus downward and from people functioning from the heart center upward. So in that way, I was trying to present a view of what we could call transcendental astrology. And, and by so doing, hopefully... Um, bring in the ancient wisdom teachings in an imminent sense into traditional astrology. That was the purpose. And to serve what the master requested of his students. So I hope I did my job. And, and one of the ways that that approach of esoteric astrology is radically different is that it, or that's notably different is it has a different rulership scheme for the planetary rulerships over the signs of the zodiac, right? That's true for the most part, yes. Okay. Do you feel like um, you published that book in 1990, right? Mm-hmm. Do you feel like it's had as much of an impact as you had hoped, or how do you feel looking back on it now in retrospect? I guess that was um, what 20 years ago now, or not? Yes. It was 30, 30 years ago now. Sorry. Yeah, pretty much. Um, yes, it's had. Here's the deal: I didn't write that book to make money. I didn't write that book to become famous. I didn't write that book so I'd be known as an esoteric astrologer. I wrote that book out of a sense of duty and love to my master. And when that book was put out, I let it go. And God bless it. God bless that work. Whoever reads it, reads it. The point is, is 30 years later, it's still in print. So, and I get letters about it from people. So I'm absolutely delighted. And beginning, well, beginning last Thursday, beginning last Thursday, tonight here in Bali, it's Thursday, um, I'm going to be giving a second of eight webinars to China on esoteric astrology. I have a translator. I've been called by a Chinese called Nodor. It's a large astrology school in Beijing, and they teach Western astrology. And it's not the first time I'm teaching for them. But the students wanted esoteric astrology. So now I'm teaching esoteric astrology in China, and they have no books no reference books. None of the Blavatsky books have been translated into Chinese. None of the Bailey books have been translated into Chinese. I had to write a glossary and, and do special diagrams for this group of students. There's 52 or 55 of them. So I'm so grateful, you see. I mean, you go to a rock concert and there's 20,000 people screaming and paying hundreds of dollars for a seat. I'm delighted people pay a few dollars and they come, 50 of them, to an esoteric workshop. It's being part of a larger work, just as you, my friend, are holding the seeds of astrology for your generation and are doing your part to become successful, God bless you, but also to contribute to astrology. So, too, I have become successful, and I'm seeking more and more just to contribute, you know? It's it's, it's as simple as that, really. Right. Brilliant. So, yeah, you published that book in 1990. You went on to publish other works, um, other uh, books since then, including Rulers of the Horoscope in 2000, and I think two or three other books in the yes, 2000s I, as well. And I haven't had time to publish any more books. I've been so busy teaching, so busy teaching, so busy uh, putting out my own newsletter, uh, so busy uh, working with clients, and oh, loving this part, being a mentor to students on a one-to-one -one basis. This has been a delight. And do you know what, Chris? I have a dozen such one-to-one. -one. You can't take too many at a time, you know. Mm -hmm. and I, have, I have a dozen of, of, of these private students that meet with me some once a month, once every two weeks. 
the four most advanced of my students are Chinese, two of whom speak English very poorly. I mean, it's wonderful that this wave is going to China and opening up in that world, that very materialistic world, seeds are being planted right now. And and one of the biggest contributors to that is um, David Raleigh from Atlanta, Georgia, who's the director of this school. And that gentleman has been in Beijing now, I don't know, maybe 10 years, maybe more. And I just, my hat's off to David Raleigh for the wonderful work he's doing to bringing Western astrology and Western astrologers to China. So I just wanted to mention that in passing. Yeah, I did a whole um, episode 204. David actually visited me in Denver, and we did a whole episode talking about his school, the Nodor Astrology School, and his work to bring Western astrology to China over the past decade. I'm delighted. I'm delighted you two had a chance to meet, and I hope you personally get a chance to go and teach there. Yeah, definitely. One of these days, uh, talking about having my book on Hellenistic astrology translated into uh, Chinese at some point here before too long, as well as Japanese. That actually raises a question that several listeners asked, and I wasn't sure if it would actually be a good question, but that provides a segue into it if we wanted to go there. Just uh, over the past 10 or 20 years, there's been this um, sort of revival of older forms of astrology from prior to the 20th century. And some people were just asking how you felt about that or what your sort of reaction is to that becoming a sort of a, a trendy thing over the past decade or two. I work with lineages, and Hellenistic astrology is part of a lineage. Um, uh, and these ancient forms of astrology are part of the lineage. I'm delighted that they have resurrected. Now, will I study those books? No. Why? I don't have time. I don't have time. And also, I feel that my lens as that wonderful Hindu Rishi told me some years ago to polish my own lens. Well, you know, I'm 75 and um, my lens is pretty polished and there's still, it's still a work in progress. But to go and study Hellenistic astrology with all due respects, or, or Roman astrology, or Arabic astrology at this stage of life, I, I don't have the time for it, but I certainly support the effort of showing the roots of our ancient science. I certainly support those efforts. Sure. I think it seems like people develop their studies at some point in the first decade or two of studying astrology and eventually cobbled, you know, they put together their own synthesis and their own system of the sources that they draw on, and then they spend the rest of their career refining that system. And it's very rare that somebody just, you know, just radically drops whatever approach they've been refining and developing to, you know, as perfect as they can for most of their life, that you just sort of drop that and walk away from it. Because you've spent so much time refining it, and I think that's one of the commonality in the astrological community. Even for somebody only like two decades into their approach, like I am, or into their studies of astrology, that you you develop an approach relatively early on in your studies, and then you spend the rest of your life sort of trying to refine that as best you can. Yes, but it's not the same for my personality, for example, because I'm learning lessons all the time, and so when people say, Alan, you better check this out. Or uh, when life says, hey, Alan, mm, you got a little resistance there. You, you need to check this out. So I'm always open to becoming a better person, which is different than 
dropping my astrological system to change it to another. Sure. Um, there is this sense of um, a work in progress, and therefore I'm not one of those older people that refuses to change on the personality level. I'm open to that. Sure, sure. Um, and one one of the things I noticed is you actually quote some authors like Manilius in Alan Ogan's Complete Astrology. So it's like you yes, did sir. a relatively thorough literature review I did. when you got into astrology, and you already had yes. like a college education, so you kind of knew how to do research at that point. And that's one of the reasons that makes your early books stand out is they were very sort of comprehensive in terms of how you tried to approach everything. I had a postgraduate university education. Right. So I, I was writing term papers and theses and things like this. You know, I I mean, if I may say, you know, I'm very scholarly oriented. Mm -hmm. Now I love to study and and to learn. I mean, it's always been that way. But when I first started reading, uh, writing, when I was much younger, I had a lot more energy for it. And sure. that's why when you're young, you can just, you know, like this. And right. now as I'm older, I, I need longer periods of rest in between studies. <laughs> yeah, I, I am feeling that. I'm only in my mid-30s, but I understand that feeling now of the exuberance of first getting into the field and just reading and consuming everything that you can. But at some point, you know that slowing down like a little bit, and there's almost only so much time in the day that you can devote to study versus teaching or doing consultations or what have you. And then there is something wonderful, and that is a, a level of magnetism which draws you to your goal. And that magnetism requires more and more and more one-pointedness, mm. and so things get eliminated automatically. You begin to assess what needs to be gained and what needs to be eliminated that you get intuitively. Mm. And then you just have to obey. And what happens is that, and it's a very interesting dynamic, the more one-pointed you get, the more inclusive you become in terms of acceptance. So it's an interesting process that the closer you are walking to your own path, the more accepting you are of life. It's a nice balance. Yeah, I, I like that. Um, that's brilliant. I had a follow-up question there, but it escapes me at the moment. One of the last major areas I was curious about is over the past like decade or two, just in, in my lifetime, I've seen a pretty radical change in terms of society, but also in the astrological community in terms of like acceptance of um, LGBT uh, issues in the LGBT community. And um, I know that's been part of your life. It's not been like a major thing that you focused your career on necessarily. But I was curious, as sort of an astrologer who came up in a different time period compared to how things are now, um, if you've reflected on that and how that has been an experience for you in your life. I appreciate you asking me that question, and I take inspiration from Ram Das in that respect. First of all. Um, I've been married, and I have grandchildren, I have a child, I raised a family, but I've never been bisexual, I've always been homosexual. It just so what? happens, it just so happens, I married a homosexual woman, it just so happens that we were best friends, we fell in love with each other, and then nature took its course, and the first time, I'm, I'm being very frank with you and, and, and our mm -hmm. audience, the first time I ever made love to a woman, fully made love to a woman, 
um, after that after that took place, I looked at her and I said, you've just conceived a male child. And she looked at me and she said, I know. I was told to come to you and to make love with you. I said, great. Now we have to talk about what we're going to do with, with each other about this. And we were then we found ourselves two weeks later at Woodstock. And I was in the entourage of a very famous rock group because I was a translator and part of this larger entourage. Wait, and you were said, at Woodstock as a translator? Well, That's really- they, I, was in, I was in their entourage. I was invited by them because I was their translator. They didn't need me to be a translator then, but I was their friend. And they gave me a ticket and they said, come and stay at our house and be with us because I became friends with them. Wow, that's really wild. Yeah. I was part of the larger they had their they had their sound engineers and they had their, you know, publicity agents and you know, but they had and they rented this huge mansion. And 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 I was and they said, and bring anybody you like. And so I brought Karen with me because she and I were lovers at the time. So I was part of this entourage that went to Woodstock. And so Karen said to me, let's not, we didn't know Woodstock was going to be Woodstock. She said, Mm -hmm. we have some important things to discuss. Everybody is going to the concert. Let's you and I stay here and talk about what we want to do in life. And so while everybody was at the concert, I promised to love and cherish this woman and to take care of that child, you know, as a father. And she agreed to have the child. And then in our group, we were the only gay people in our group. Our group was, it was the 60s, for God's sake. Everybody was sleeping with everybody else. But we were the only really gay people in the group. And um, we were the first to get married and the first to have a child. How do you like that? Wow. So then I, I, I spent those years of crazy <sighs> gay expression, wonderful but nuts. I spent it as a married man raising a child. So I wasn't exposed to AIDS. I wasn't exposed to a lot of things, you know, praise God. Um, I was struggling with how to be married and how to have a child and that not be my life orientation. So you were fully open with that in terms of yourself and your own self-recognition. Yes, like you understood yes. that, um, but it was just something where because you were in a monogamous relationship, you didn't yes. go outside of that. No, I respected that, and I tried my best to convert, if you will, and and so did she. I mean, we had, uh, we were. Don't forget, there were certain pre- prescriptions about being a family at that time, and mm. and and trying to raise a family and living within a family and having a heterosexual child, for God's sake. So um, it was extremely challenging because from the time I was seven years old, seven years old. I knew I was attracted to women on the level of the soul and men on emotional, physical levels. And of course, I made friends that's attracted to guys on the soul too. But I knew that my primary attraction was to women as dear friends and to love them and, and protect them and whatever, but not to make love with them and not to have relationships because that wasn't my orientation. I knew it from the time I was seven. And it was agonizing between seven and... 16 or 17 years because I was raised in the 50s and and in a very heterosexual environment. Who wasn't, for God's sake? And then after I was about 18 and and 19, and it was the 60s, and it was whoopee-doo, everybody is sleeping with everybody else. Everybody is experimenting with everybody else. I went, okay, now that's become easier. So I accepted myself 
as homosexual at about 18 or 19 years of age. And I never had a problem with that. Other people had the problem with it. I never had the problem with it. And then, as I said, I was married for 10 years, and, and, and then eventually we separated, and, and it was decided by the, th- by the three of us, me and my ex-wife and my child, that I would raise a child. And I raised my son on my own for nine or 10 years until he met a girl and went off with her and started his own life. Um, so I've had the advantage, if you please, when you counsel people and they're married and they're having problems in marriage or they have children and they want to know about their children— I've been married. I've had children. I have grandchildren that I'm very close with. So I can be a good counselor, just no matter what my sexual orientation is, my natural born as, born this way, sexual orientation. Um, I have the experience as a father and um, um, a husband living in a heterosexual world. So I can be a good counselor to such people, been there, done that. But the truth of the matter is, Chris, that it was not easy because I'll give you just example that involves you, okay? Mm-hmm. That involves you. Um, I remember the second time we met, and uh, I saw in you that you were going to become someone very important in the astrological community. I saw this skinny kid who needed a good meal. We met and, it when I was 19, by the way. Uh, Yes. And then you said to me, you, you come to a lecture I give it in Seattle, and you came up to me after the lecture. You were 19 years old. You said, Mr. Oaken, you were one of the greatest astrologers of the 20th century. And I looked at you and I said, young man, I'm still alive. <laughs> right. It was 2005 or something like that. Uh, I said, are you going to come to my weekend workshop? And you said, sir, you were so polite. You said, sir, um, uh, I'm a student, and I really can't afford it. And I said to you, young man, anybody who thinks I was one of the greatest astrologers of the 20th century uh, deserves a scholarship to my weekend workshop. And I gave that to you, and I'm very happy I did. Then we met again when you were working at an, a UAC conference. Uh, ESAR conference in oh, the ESAR summer con- of 2005. Oh, ESAR conference, yeah, a few years after that. And I saw you. And I said to myself, now this is going back to this whole gay thing. And uh, I saw you and I said, that young man needs some food. There's no doubt about it. So I went up to you and excuse me, I don't want to embarrass you because you're very successful right now. No, but, at the, but at the time you looked hungry. And so I, I, I took a few 20s and quietly I put them in your hand. And I said, I'm investing in your future in some small way and all the very best to you, Chris. And I walked quickly away. The reason I walked quickly away is that I didn't want anyone around to think I was gay coming on to you. The reason I walked quickly away is I didn't want you to think that I was coming on to you by giving you money. That's the frame of reference. I couldn't just stand there and have a decent conversation with an up-and-coming astrologer without people looking and thinking, hmm, hmm, that's what I lived under, that type of pressure. Okay. And yeah. um, or I came to another astrological conference with uh, a man I was having a bromance with. He was heterosexual with kids. He was my very dear friend. We loved each other as brothers. We had separate rooms at the conference. I like having my own room. And people were whispering. Woman came up to me. Woman came up to me. She said, "How dare you bring a lover to this conference?" Oh wow. Okay. So that's, that's yeah. The- you so you had to that. deal with once you 
sort of left your marriage and you were a sort of single gay man in the astrological community, you had to deal with some weird societal things that sort of Absolutely. came along with that within the Absolutely. community? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the thing was that I never had a problem with my sexuality. I always felt that it was normal and that I was born this way. It was other people that had the problem. And I can tell you, I was raised at a time where some of my friends were put in mental institutions by their families. Um, it was awful. So I'm so glad that being human is allowed nowadays. And the, the point is, just to bring us up to date, um, I've, I've, I've went through a gay phase, but I've always been homosexual. By that I mean my life has never been focused on the gay life, except for a very short period of time where I experimented with it. My life has always been centered on my, my astrology, on my education, on teaching, on my, my inner spiritual life, and that my particular sexuality added a certain degree of sensitivity to my nature, which helped me to be, I believe, more compassionate, more accepting. And um, and certainly good with arranging furniture. So I mean, um, it's uh, it's always been a gift to me this sexuality. But I've never focused politically or as an exclusive lifestyle. I ninety five. This is the truth. Ninety five percent of my friends are heterosexual because ninety five percent of the world's population is heterosexual, or ninety three percent, whatever you want to count it. it it's never been this big deal to me, you understand? It's never been the center, but I'm certainly happy that I was born this way. It has given me uh, an extra dose of sensitivity that I don't think I would have had otherwise. And I'm very happily married to a Balinese man. I've never been happier. I was married in Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, six years, never been happier in my life. Beautiful. I'm very grateful. That's my story. Brilliant. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. And I want to expand on the story you talked about at mm -hmm. our second meeting, just because that was an important moment for for me. And I've always felt like it was a testament to your character and and something else about you that was uh, hard to articulate, a little intangible. But um, so we had met at that workshop, and I'd gone. I was living in Seattle for a few months. But I was a broke college student, and I was just scraping by and basically eating spaghetti and peanut butter gel and jelly, sort of alternating every day for like eight or nine months. And by the time I showed up to this ESAR conference, I just barely made it there. It was in Chicago at some resort, like in the middle of nowhere. So there was no restaurants or like grocery stores in walking distance because uh, ESAR has a knack for doing their conferences in the middle of nowhere. And I just showed up there with about twenty dollars in my pocket, which I was a Somehow supposed to survive on for the course of the next week, and I think I was like crashing in my friend Nick Dagan Best's hotel room at like the on the couch or something like that, and I had no basically plan for how I was actually going to survive. I just knew I wanted to go to this astrology conference and I was going to basically starve myself to make it through the week so I could attend some lectures and meet some of these famous astrologers whose books I'd been reading. And uh, one night, I think it was after the conference opening, very early in the conference, I had had to spend most of my money at that point to get a meal or two at these expensive restaurants at the hotel, and I was pretty much broke and looking at like five days of not figuring out how I was going to eat. And you just came up to me and you 
uh, shook my hand really quickly, and you you passed me like forty dollars or or something, and said something to that effect, like I think that you need this, and then you walked away. But you never, and I it was only years later that I really told you how absolutely broke and sort of like destitute that I was, and wouldn't have sort of survived that conference probably uh, without you having come up and and done that for me. So I always really. Um, Remembered it fondly and felt like I owed you for for that, or at least I was very thankful for it. And I've attempted to sort of pass that on to other younger astrologers in similar situations in following your example. Thank you, sir. Thank you. But I hurried away because I felt that we would be judged, and otherwise I would have stayed and talked with you. Sure. So, but it's because of my little extra sensitivity that I could tune in on the needs of a young man and help, and as a father, help provide for them. Yeah, and I was kind of mystified because I had no idea why you, how you knew, sort of in, intuitively that I was in that sort of situation. But it just mm-hmm. saved me out of a di- very difficult situation. And I'm sorry you sort of had to feel that way in terms of the social situation, but it was something I was always grateful for, so thank you. Well, you're very welcome. And um, my we investment in you and my deeper than we real belief in you has paid off. Look at you. you. You are one of the leading figures in contemporary astrology. You're going to stay in the forefront of this science for many years to come. If I may say, without being patronizing, I'm very proud of you. Thank you. Well, thanks for being one of my first teachers. And um, yeah, thanks for delving into this part of your sort of life and career with me, just because I thought it was important. Because although it's not well known and it's not something you've made a major part of your career or mm-hmm. writings or anything, I always I thought it was notable now in retrospect that you were one of the leading astrologers of in the late 20th and early 21st century and that you were um, a gay man uh, during that time, during a time when we lost. Many other gay men who were leading astrologers like Jim Lewis or Howard Sisportas? Yes, or Richard Eideman or Buzz Myers. Right. Um, just, during, just during, the AIDS, during the AIDS yeah. epidemic in yes. the 1980s and 1990s. Yes. yes. And thank God I was married and, and monogamous during that period. Yeah, it's kind of interesting how that happened and almost kind of protected you in some way. Yes. Um, yeah. And I might say, my marvelous, handsome, intelligent, lively 20-year-old grandson was just here in Bali, and we had a splendid time, and I did something very foolish. I decided to climb temples in Java, and I climbed Burabadur, which is an amazing Buddhist temple, and then I climbed Prambanand, which is this 9th century Hindu temple, and I quit when I back to uh, home to Bali, I had muscle spasms for a week. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. <laughs> but I had to climb with my grandson, had to get to the top of that mountain. And uh, yeah, it it's, is still a very interesting and blessed life, Chris. I'm very grateful. Brilliant. Well, I'm, still your, I'm glad you're still active and you're still healthy and you're still producing uh, hopefully new books pretty soon here. And you're also doing webinars. That, that seems to be one of the main things in terms yeah. of your intellectual output at this point in your career. Yes, I am giving now. I'm giving two series of webinars. Uh, one is on the four angles of the horoscope, called the four gateways, and next Monday is the third of the fourth. And I'm giving an eight series. This is my second eight-week series of webinars to China, 
And, uh, and I'm just thrilled about that. And then uh, what I'd like to tell people is that I'm giving a webinar in December, in the middle of December, just a one session December, is when I view 2020 and what I think is excuse me, coming up for 2020. And I advertise that through my newsletter and on Facebook. And um, so I hope some of you will attend that particular webinar. But webinars and, and Zoom and Skype have given me the freedom to live in Bali and to have clients all over the world and to have students all over the world. Um, if it weren't for this 21st century technology, I couldn't live the way I do. And I'm so grateful for that because this is a beautiful place to live, Bali. And I'm just really grateful to be here and to be able to do this type of an interview because of 21st century technology. Yeah, and I'm really grateful that we were able to do it. And you've been living in Bali for quite a long time now, right? I first came here uh, in 1983 with my son, who was 13 at the time. And I then I opened up a little business and stayed from 83 to 86. Um, I took a little hiatus from astrology, the only time I've ever done that since 67, and started um, exploring my other talents, uh, designing jewelry and designing furniture and these kinds of things. And then in 1986, I went back full speed into the Alice Bailey books and full speed into astrology. And then I moved here, um, Skype in hand, computer in hand, Alice Bailey books in hand. I moved here in 2004. And I've lived here um, pretty much ever since, yeah, with um, lots of going back and forth to Portugal. But Bali is home. It's been real home since 2008. Right. In Portugal, you speak Portuguese and you taught yes. at an astrology school in Portugal for a long time, right? For, for six years, I taught at the Chiron Center. It's, it's there in a very minuscule way, but at this point. But when I taught there, it was the largest astrology school in Europe. It had 1,500 associates and uh, on a seven-year program. And I was in charge of the sixth year, which was esoteric astrology. So, um, And I do speak Portuguese. So it was an honor and a privilege to live in Lisbon during that time from the 90s until the early 2000s. And, and uh, then I, I'm going to Portugal in about three weeks for three months and because uh, I have a, a great deal of heart-centeredness and a lovely friends and students in Lisbon. So we go back every every year for three months. Wow. And, and have you had your books translated into other languages? Yes, in Portuguese, um, uh, Norwegian. Uh, I'm sitting in front with a book here translated into Czechoslovakian, if you please. My monitor is sitting on top of it. And other uh, Italian, uh, oh, a number of languages, number of languages. But to what extent? Because that's an issue I'm going and in, getting into right now is translating my book into other languages and some of the issues that come along with that. But I guess you had the advantage of being able to oversee some of your translations since you know some of those languages. Although you probably didn't necessarily do the translations yourself, right? No, I never did them. But you know, they've been translated into languages I don't speak, like Dutch and Czechoslovakian, and um, and I think one was translated into Hindi. And you don't get supervision over those. I mean, sometimes I find found that there were translations of my books out that I had no, no knowledge of, mm. never mind no income from. Sure. So um, it's dicey. It's very dicey. And this is one reason why in the future I want to publish my own books so that people deal with me directly about the translation rights. Um, okay. And that's, that's pretty important. 
Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty important. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, well, what is your website and where can people find out more information about your work? Sure. Very simple. AlanOaken.com. Okay. I like that. That keeps it simple. Simple. And um, I put out a free newsletter every month, uh, usually every month, unless I'm overworked. And uh, say about 10 times a year, I put out a newsletter. And um, it's free. And uh, yeah, anybody who wants to sign up for my newsletter, please go to AlanOaken.com. Cool. And they'll probably find, that's where they'll find announcements about upcoming webinars and other things like that. Absolutely. All of that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Brilliant. All right. Well, people should check that out at alanoken.com. And um, I guess that's it for this discussion. Thanks a lot for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. All the best to you, my friend. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening or watching this episode of the Astrology Podcast, and we'll see you next time. Thanks to our patrons who helped to support the production of this episode through our page on patreon.com. In particular, I'd like to give a shout out to our patrons Christine Stone and Nate Craddock, as well as the Astro Gold Astrology app available at astrogold.io, and the Portland School of Astrology at portlandastrology.org.